Well, good morning. Good morning to everyone here. Good morning to everyone tuning in online and our friends at Farmington Hills, Pastor Sean and crew. So good to be with you guys and to be under the word together today. Today we're going to be continuing our series together through the Apostles' Creed. So before we go any further, let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name, thanking you for your word. God, thanking you for all you're doing in and through us. God, I pray that you would move me out of the way that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people. God, minister to our hearts. We need you. We come begging you for your presence. God, without your presence, without your spirit, I'm just a man talking on a stage, and we need more than that today. We need you, God. Meet us here in your word. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen. When I was five years old, I stole communion from church. Yeah, I did it, I did it, I know. Not my brightest moment, not my brightest moment. But week after week, I would watch that communion tray go by, and in my church where I was raised, if you weren't baptized and hadn't made a profession of faith, you couldn't take the communion. So week after week, I'd watch that tray go by, and I'd stick my little hands out of my mouth and say, stop, boy. But finally, one day, I built up the courage, and I found me a little window of opportunity. I stuck my little hand in there. I got it. Stuffed it in my pocket and walked out of the sanctuary. Mission accomplished. And, um, but mothers have a sixth sense. How many know that mothers have a sixth sense? They're like Spider-Man. They got like spider senses. They just know. And so I'm, I'm creeping up behind my mom, and she looks back, and she sees me about to partake. And I look, I look up at her, she looked down at me. And I look up at her, she looks down at me. And my soul left my body. My soul left my body for about two seconds. I went to glory for about two seconds. And she said, boy, take that back to the sanctuary. So I took the walk of shame back to the sanctuary. Tears flowing down my face and I, I put it back. And I was kind of messed up for a little while after that. I was new, I was young, I'm, I'm five, I'm new to who God is and what he's about, and I'm like, I have blown it with God forever. I'm done. I don't know how he works or how he operates up there, but I'm pretty sure something just happened and I'm messed up. But the question I was asking was, man, did I ruin it this time? Did I ruin it? this time. You ever been there where you've done something and you're thinking to yourself, man, did I ruin it this time? Did I ruin it this time? Is there any hope left for me? Did I ruin my family this time? Maybe there was grace for the other things, but this time I messed up. Did I ruin my, my future this time? that I ruined my relationship with God this time. Another way of putting this, has the grace of God run out for me? Has the grace of God run out? Did I ruin it this time? We have an enemy. His name is Satan, and he loves to cast shame and blame. He loves to cast shame over us, and he wants to drown you in despair, and he wants you to believe that if you've done something that you have 
ruined it this time. God could never forgive you for that. God could never accept you after that. And maybe you're asking the question, has the grace of God run out for me? Have I ruined it this time? As we come to the scriptures today, we see three men on crosses. Criminal A, I will call him. He's on the left side of the cross. He's committed crimes and he's up there because he's done some things that he shouldn't have done. He's broken the law and now the legal system is about to judge him. On the right side of that cross, I'll call him Criminal B. He's committed crimes and he, know, he knows why he is up there. He's done some things that he shouldn't have done. But the man in the middle is Jesus of Nazareth. And he's there on assignment. He hasn't done anything. He's the perfect Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And he's just up there on assignment. The Apostle's Creed says this. Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the, the legal authority of the day. He was the governing authority in that time period. And this essentially is telling us that what's about to happen to Jesus is happening under his governance and under his leadership and under his authority. He kind of goes down in history in a bad way. So we remember this 2,000 years later. You know, Pontius doesn't have a good name in history. People don't name their dog Little Pontius Pilate. You've never seen a dog. Hey, Little Pilate. You don't see that. So he kind of goes down in history in a bad way. But here's what we know because of this crucifixion. Number one. In the Greco-Roman world, there are several ways, there were several ways to administer capital punishment. All of them were terrible, but there were a few different ways you could do it. There was beheading. Now, that's quite terrible, but that's fast. They got, they, got, they got you done quick. Boom, got you done quick with, with beheading. Impaling, quite terrible. My least favorite, being buried alive. Ugh. Right? But crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low of criminals, for the worst people in society. It was not just uh, uh, an administering of capital punishment, but it also was to shame the person, to hoist them up, to make an example out of them for everyone to see. So here's what we know. By crucifying Jesus, the, the authorities of the day weren't, weren't just trying to kill Jesus, they were trying to humiliate him. They were trying to shame him and humiliate him and bring him down low. We see some examples in the scriptures of them humiliating him. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. They weren't just trying to kill him. They were trying to bring him low. They were trying to humiliate him and make a laughing stock of him. So we know that when we look at this crucifixion. Also, here's what we know. Those people next to him on the cross, they weren't petty criminals, as we've already explained. If you were being crucified, you were considered the lowest of the low. You were considered somebody that society wanted to be done with, and so prison time wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to use one of those other methods of capital punishment. They wanted to make an example out of you and shame you. And we know that those people standing next to, sitting next to Jesus on that cross, 
they were considered some of the worst of the worst criminals in the world. And so, there's going to be an exchange happening between them and Jesus on the cross. There's a conversation taking place. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He's, he's directly attacking and assaulting Jesus' identity as the Messiah by saying, if you truly are the Messiah, save us and save yourself. There was supposed to be a Jewish Messiah that rose up from among the Jews, and that person was supposed to overthrow all of the political powers in the day that were oppressing Israel, and that person was supposed to save everyone. And according to this criminal, you can't be the Messiah because not only are you not saving everyone, you cannot even save yourself. This was a direct attack and assault on Jesus's identity as the Messiah. We have another criminal on the cross. He interjects himself into the, into the conversation, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Criminal B rebukes criminal A and says, don't you fear God? Essentially, all three of them are on the cross, and criminal B looks over at criminal A and says, shut up over there. Don't you know who this is? This is the Messiah. Shut up over there. Don't you fear God? If this person is the Messiah, is the Son of God, you are ruining this for yourself. Be quiet over there. Don't you fear God? And so they're having this back and forth conversation. And he continues, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. This essentially is a confession of sin, which is one of the first steps to coming into a relationship with God. You confess your sins. And this criminal on the cross, criminal B, is confessing his sins. He says, you know what? I deserve to be up here, but this man doesn't. We're getting what we deserve. Two criminals, both guilty according to the law, two different responses. One is essentially saying, I don't care who who he is. But if he is the Messiah, just get me out of this situation. If you really are God, just get me out of this. He's trying to coerce Jesus into fixing fixing his situation. The other criminal, criminal B, acknowledges his plight, acknowledges his shortcomings, and comes to Jesus with humility, comes to Jesus with repentance. How many people know there's a world of a difference between being remorseful and repentant for what you've done and just getting caught? Criminal A just got caught. And he's like, God, if you're really who you say you are, just get me out of this. Criminal B says, yes, I'm caught, but I'm also remorseful and repentant for what I've done. And I know who you are. He, he continues. Then the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he confesses his sins and he acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. He, he acknowledges that Jesus has the power to do something in his life. He acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah who will will restore things as they should be. And so he says, Jesus, when when you come into your kingdom, remember me. I know who you are, Jesus. I know what you're capable of, Jesus. And when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Even a criminal like me, even the lowest of the low like me, even one that society has given up on like me, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't despise a heart 
like this. He never has and he never will despise the repentant heart that comes to him broken. Even on your deathbed, as this individual was, he was about to go. But in those final moments, Jesus does not reject him in that moment. This is Jesus' response. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That day, when that criminal, one of the lowest of the low, one of the worst of the worst, when that criminal closed his eyes for the final time, he woke up in the presence of the living God. He woke up in the presence of the living God. And someone may say, well, how, how does a criminal get to enter paradise? That's not fair. That's not fair. But that's the scandal of the gospel. That's the reckless love of God. I imagine when that criminal showed up at the entrance of heaven. I'm not sure if heaven has an entrance, but my guess is when he showed up, the person was checking the books like, okay, how did you get here? Who let you in? Who made these reservations? That criminal didn't show his own resume. He didn't have any. He didn't show his list of good works. He didn't have any. He just showed up with faith, and he just showed up with Jesus's resume. So how does a criminal get to enter paradise? Friends, I'm here to tell you that only criminals get to enter paradise because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all transgressed the law, the law of God, and we don't show up boasting our resumes of what we've done. We come boasting the resume of Christ who accomplished everything required for us to enter heaven on that cross. Theologians call this the great exchange. Jesus takes our penalty. Jesus takes our punishment. And in exchange, we are clothed with the righteousness of God. It's puzzling. It's scandalous. It doesn't make sense. How do we get all of these, these benefits, all of these blessings, all of this acceptance from God because of what Jesus accomplished? Friends, it's the scandal of the gospel, and that's why it's good news. Theologians call this the great exchange. It's like we switched accounts with Jesus. It's kind of like me switching bank accounts with Elon Musk. You know, Elon Musk, super billionaire, <laughs> building rockets all on Twitter, trolling. You know, Elon Musk, Tesla guy. It's like me and Elon switching bank accounts. So I get all of Elon's billions of dollars, all of his assets, all of his portfolios, all of his companies, so he can keep Twitter, because that seems kind of like a headache. I don't know if I want to even deal with that, so you can keep Twitter. So you, you, get, you get all of his assets and benefits, and then I, I, I swap with him, and I'm like, okay, you get my friendship and some student loan debt. And so we kind of <laughs> swap it out. That's the great exchange. That's how a criminal enters into paradise. And this, this happens because Jesus died. Somebody has to die. A life for a life. And so we can know for a fact, just as the Apostles' Creed says, Jesus physically actually died, heart stop beating, dead, dead, show enough, dead. <laughs> Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last breath. We get life because he got death. The Apostles' Creed continues. 
It says he was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Okay, pause. This is the most controversial part of the Apostles' Creed. So thanks, Pastor Scott, for leaving me with this one. But this is, the, this is the most controversial part of the Apostles' Creed. Theologians have debated this for centuries. There are certain traditions that remove it from the creed altogether. So I'm going to take a crack at it this morning. I'm just going to share with you what I know and what I think. I'm going to share what I know and what I think. There are about three or four interpretations of this. I'll, I'll share with you the prevailing one and the one that I believe to be true. So here's what I know. Number one, this phrase is meant to place emphasis on the level of humiliation that Jesus experienced on our behalf. It's showing us how low Jesus actually descended. This, this Messiah, this King of Kings, Lord of Lords, descended, descended very low. So it's meant to place emphasis on that. Secondly, here's what I know. Jesus fully absorbed the wrath of God on the cross. What does that mean? Jesus didn't descend into the lower regions, into hell, to experience any more punishment. He absorbed the full wrath of God on the cross. There was nothing else for him to experience, no more pain or no more suffering for him. That's what I know. Now, based on interpretation and a little study, here's, here's, what I, here's also what I know. Let's go to the passage here. Between Jesus' physical death and physical resurrection, the, um, he proclaimed his victory in the spiritual realm. Between Jesus' physical death and physical resurrection, he proclaimed his victory in the spiritual realm. This is what I think based upon interpretation. Let me show you why. So we always draw our interpretations from the scriptures, not just pulling these from random places, not from YouTube and Wikipedia. This is where I'm... I'm believing from the scriptures what it teaches. All right. So this is 1 Peter 3.18. When you look at that, descended into hell is usually drawn from this passage. It says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. All right. We're all in agreement on that. He was put to death in the body. That's what we're seeing at the crucifixion. Put to death in the body. Okay. Bodies dead, spirit still alive but made alive in the spirit. Okay, now what does Jesus do in the spirit after he dies? Let's continue. After being made alive in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He goes and make a, makes a proclamation. Who are the imprisoned spirits? I believe that scripture teaches that those are Satan and his demons, these imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. This is what I think he descended into hell means. Another way of putting this, the victory was won in one location on the cross, but it was proclaimed in many locations. It was proclaimed under the earth, it's proclaimed on the earth, and it's proclaimed in the heavens. The victory was won in one location, but proclaimed in many. Philippians tells us that every knee shall bow and tongue confess, every knee shall bow under the earth, on the earth, and above the earth, that Jesus is Lord. So victory won in lo one location, proclaimed in many. It's similar to the University of Michigan winning the national championship. They won it in one location, but they proclaim it in many. That's right. 
Right. I see my friend. You got a, a shirt on here. You got a championship shirt on. He's proclaiming it today. See, you, the championship was won in one location, but proclaimed in many. They proclaimed this bad boy on the stage. They proclaimed it in Ann Arbor, and they descended into Columbus at Ohio State and even <laughs> proclaimed it there. So proclaimed <laughs> one in one location, proclaimed in many. And Jesus resurrects from the dead, and he proclaims it on the earth. The Apostles' Creed tells us that Jesus, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. So, physically dies, proclaims it in the lower regions in the spiritual realm, resurrects from the dead, proclaims it on earth, ascends to heaven, proclaims it there. Victory won in one location, proclaimed in many. Here's what we can know. That one, Satan wants to shame us. He wants to make you think that you've blown it. He wants you to give up on yourself, and he wants you to give up on other people. For some of you, maybe there was a point in your life where you felt close to God, but now you feel a level of distance because maybe you've done something that makes you think God doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. That's not true. That's not true. God says, run to me. Come to me. That's what he's saying to you. Some of you may have had a dream or a vision from God for something that he wanted you to do, and because of something you've done, you're like, no, he can't use me anymore. That's not true. You have the victory in Jesus. And when Satan claims defeat over you, proclaim victory over him. Proclaim that victory over him. Not the victory that you've won, but the victory that Jesus has won. And I just want to encourage somebody, if you're that person that feels like, man, I've done something, I, I blew it this time. Jesus says, come to me. If he can have mercy on a criminal on the cross, he can have mercy on you as well. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to you in your son Jesus' name. Thanking you for what you've done. I pray for everyone under the sound of my voice. God, I pray that they would know that they can come to you and you never reject a heart of repentance. You don't reject the heart that humbles itself and confesses its sin. And I pray for those under the sound of my voice that need to confess something today that they would. That they would confess it to you and come running into your arms. God, I pray for the people of War Church and everywhere else that they would proclaim the victory of God. That when Satan tries to knock us out and consider us defeated, that we will proclaim the victory that you won that day on the cross. And you won it in one location, but God, we want to proclaim it in many. Want to proclaim it here today. Want to proclaim it in in, in the community, in the world, to the nations. God, we come proclaiming the victory, and we thank you for what you've done and all you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen.